This is episode 187 of That Shakespeare Life. Bring our podcast into your classroom with access to our video streaming library, printable worksheets, lesson plans, and activities that work like science labs for Shakespeare history. Unlock all these benefits when you become a member here at That Shakespeare Life, where you can cook, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare. Sign up today at castycash.com slash member and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Tony Shaw. My full essay, which is available on www.independent.academia.edu slash Tony Shah, is called History of London Bridge, the Origins of the Bridge House Yard and Bridge House Estates, a review of their early history as civic and religious institutions. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. Just a stick with a bit of string on the end, which is essentially what they're firing these early ones with. You can see that in the early artwork. And then we gradually end up with the version of the Akbut slash Archivus. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. In 1593, Shakespeare wrote Venus and Adonis, the play in which he writes, quote, like the deadly bullet of a gun, his meaning struck her ere his words begun, end quote. As our guest this week explains, this is likely a reference to the phenomenon of a supersonic bullet hitting the target before the gunshot is heard. The arquebuses owned by Henry VIII are housed at the Royal Armories in England, and some of those date to within Shakespeare's lifetime. They were capable of 400 meters per second or more, which is supersonic. The big heavy muskets of his era and many artillery pieces were also supersonic. The word bullet was used for any gun projectile at the time. So Shakespeare could actually have been talking about firearms, artillery, or both in this reference. Shakespeare references either the word gun or musket a total of seven times in his work. Like so many things during this Renaissance period of history, the technology of firearms and rifles was growing and evolving rapidly in terms of their construction, accuracy, firing mechanisms, and even which countries adopted the manufacturing of these weapons. Several surviving examples of these guns from the 15th to 17th century, Germany, France, and England are held at the Royal Armory's collections, and their keeper of firearms and artillery, Jonathan Ferguson, is is here today to talk with us about the differences between matchlock, flintlock, rifles, and muskets, and to explore exactly what kind of weapons Shakespeare would have known about when he mentions guns, bullets, and muskets in his plays. Jonathan Ferguson is Keeper of Firearms and Artillery, based at the Royal Armouries Museum in Leeds. Jonathan has curated numerous displays, including the forthcoming Royal Armouries exhibition, Firefight Second World War. He is also a technical specialist for Armament Research Services and associate editor for Armax Journal. His research interests include the use and effect of firearms and their depiction in popular culture. His publications include the book, Mauser, Broom Handle Pistol from 2017, a contribution to the right to bear arms, historical perspectives and debate on the Second Amendment from 2018, and Thornycroft to SA-80, British Bullpup Firearms, 1901 to 2020. That publication was published in 2020. Find out more about Jonathan and links to the Royal Armouries in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Jonathan. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you very much for having me on. In Henry VI, Part Two, Queen Margaret says, quote, like an overcharged gun, recoil and turn the force of them upon thyself, end quote. Jonathan, what kind of gun would Margaret be referring to here? Were there guns in Shakespeare's lifetime that could be both charged and recoil when fired? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, as I think you've uh, said to me yourself, people don't tend to think about guns being much of a thing at this period but we have to remember or find out for the first time that 
we have at this point over two centuries. So by 1600, over two centuries of guns being a thing. Um, I suppose it's worth sort of, I hate this word, but unpacking what a gun might be. Now, that quote might refer to what we probably all intuitively think. So something portable, like an, an arquebus or, or a caliber, which we'll come to later, I suspect. Or it could even mean an artillery piece, so like a big cannon. All of these things have recoil and can be overcharged. And by that, she just means you put too much gunpowder in, you get excessive recoil. You know, high school physics says every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And that kick, that push that you see or feel if you fired a gun, is from that explosive force inside. Now, we might have more sophisticated guns, we do, <laughs> than they did then, but it's the exact same force that you'd be feeling. And the more powder you put in, to the point, the more recoil you get. In Love's Labor's Lost, Moth says, quote, is that lead slow, which is fired from a gun? End quote. Jonathan, did guns of the 16th century fire lead bullets? These quotes are so interesting. Um, yes, absolutely. Uh, so we know that very early firearms, and in a period sense, firearms meant any arm using fire, pretty much, might fire an arrow or a stone. So especially big guns, so um, artillery for knocking down walls, say, might use a, a gun stone, so a, a big chiseled piece of you know, sphere of stone. But small arms, firearms, things that, firearms in the modern sense, sorry, that you might fire from the shoulder or the cheek or the hand, they would all fire lead bullets, you know, unless you were really stuck for materials and you wanted to, to fire something else out of it, you could, because anything you put down will come out. <laughs> but lead, as it is today, was the ideal substance for making bullets. It's, it's massive. You know, it has a relative high amount of mass for its size. It's soft and malleable. It melts easily, so you can form it into, well, at that time, a sphere, but later on, a bullet shape. So, and today, for environmental reasons, we are trying to minimize lead in, uh, in firearms as we are in everything else. But there are very few metals that are as good. In the Royal Armouries Museum, they have a gun dated 1600, which is called a matchlock muzzle-loading arquebus, or harkbus. Am I supposed to pronounce the H? Good question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we know the answer to that one. You can, you can often infer pronunciation, as you will know, you can infer pronunciation from spellings often and how they change. I always say arquebus, even if it has an H. So for me, the H is silent, but it's that's by no okay. means certain. I mean, it, if you look at, um, I guess you call them cognate words in other languages, um, arquebus in Spanish, um, Castilian Spanish, complete with lisp, um, <laughs> uh, and other languages, then chances are the H is silent. Sorry, very long-winded answer. <laughs> well, I'll use, I'll use the, the professional version then and call it an arquebus both ways. But are, we do have the, the arquebus with an H and a, an arquebus without an H. Are these the same gun or a different? They're the same gun with a slight caveat. <laughs> it's always, always more complicated than you think. So the, the difference between the version with the H and without, not, none. It's just a spelling thing. And you'll find different spellings, even within English, you know, never mind foreign languages that I've just alluded to. But it goes deeper than that and further into the past, because this is one of the earliest terms for a firearm that we have. And the early form is Hackbutt. And then the really early form from the German is, well, <laughs> uh, Hackebusch, Hackebuscher, or, or something similar to that. Um, I don't know what the period pronunciation would be. And my modern German pronunciation is appalling. So... Uh, but they all come from the same basic origin, we believe, and it is Germanic, and it is hook gun. Hack meaning hook, and uh, busher meaning gun, or busker. I must apologize to any uh, German listeners. And our German uh, listeners, well, I, I will not <laughs> attempt German at all, so I will be spelling these both in the show notes for idea. you to, to yeah. see the difference in terms there. But all the terms come, come from that root. 
Now, we have many paintings and records that show military soldiers using a hand cannon, which is exactly what it sounds like, a small cannon that was made to be fired while you're holding it in your hands. Some scholars consider the hand cannon to be a precursor to the handgun. Jonathan, were there handguns in Shakespeare's lifetime? Definitely were, yeah. So the the arquebus, by the definition of the day, until about 1800-ish, was a handgun. Handgun was a synonym for for what we now use uh, the word firearm for. So in his day, firearm would have meant anything from an artillery piece to a tiny little pistol. Um, Nowadays, firearm just means things you can carry, basically, Um, just to sort of clear that one up. Handgun, or handgone, G-O-N-N-E, is a common archaic spelling, um, including at this time. And I suppose that, well, I suppose I should clarify that hand cannon is kind of a neologism, as far as we know. They didn't they didn't at the time call things hand cannon or hand cannons, if you prefer. Um, hand gun was the generic term, and it literally meant any gun you could carry by hand. In terms of technology, those very early hand guns, and that includes the early form of the the arquebus, the hackbutt, were were just metal tubes with a hole in the top sealed in the back so that all the pressure goes out the front gunpowder goes in some sort of bullet goes in and then a little hole you have a little power uh, pile of powder on top of the gun and you set fire to it with a burning wick essentially so that's your basic handgun and if you stick a, a hook on the bottom of the gun they call it a hook it's really more of a, a sort of stop or like a tab that sticks welded onto the bottom of this simple gun that's what creates the hackbutt, the hook gun. That then gets a wooden stock later on in the 1500s, um, different mechanisms for firing it instead of just a stick with a bit of string on the end, which is essentially what they're firing these early ones with. You can see that in the early artwork. And then we gradually end up with the version of the hackbutt slash arquebus that Shakespeare would have recognised, um, although he might have used another name for it, which will come up in a moment, I suspect. And so it's a very complicated scenario, but the, the key thing to remember is these are simple iron tubes, you know, heated and hammered like any sort of bit of blacksmithing. And you close up one end, you shove everything and shoot it out the end. So although we have 200 odd years of technology, it moves relatively slowly and then it kind of picks up pace. And by 1600-ish, uh, we've got what you and I would recognize as a firearm. Now, would we call that a handgun now? No, what we call a handgun now would be a pistol, maybe a revolver, you know, revolver. They're all part of the same bit of terminology. So something that you can hold and fire in one hand. And it might surprise people to realize that that also existed in Shakespeare's time. So by at least the 1580s, we have single shot, but portable, concealable, short barreled guns you can grasp with one hand. And they even have safety catches because now you need a safety catch because you might shoot yourself if you're not careful. And they're literally ready to pull out of a cloak or a robe or something, flick off the safety catch if you're being um, safety conscious, and shoot somebody with. That's the first time we have this sort of unknown threat that's represented by the handgun, which is relevant for assassination, for example. So William, one of the Williams of Orange was assassinated. 1584, using one of these, what we would now call a handgun, and what they would then probably call a dag or a pistol. And this is fired, for those of people who are interested in, in the sort of technical possibilities of that, it's no longer a bit of bit of rope on a stick. It's what's called a wheel lock, which we believe was invented by none other than Leonardo da Vinci, and was a, a, a very rapidly spinning disc of metal and it would create sparks from a piece of iron pyrites to set the thing off. Sounds primitive, actually incredibly sophisticated for the 15th century when it was invented. As an example of a matchlock rifle known as the matchlock Petronal is housed at the Royal Armory's collections and it's from France. Jonathan, this gun is intricately beautiful as we might expect from France and it has a golden or at least gold painted firing hammer. I'm sure there's a better term for that. But were rifles and matchlock technology in particular spreading quickly across Europe? Where was England during Shakespeare's lifetime in their overall adoption of this kind of weapon? 
Yeah, interesting. So I suppose, again, to sort of un- unpack that, match lock is, I mentioned the wheel lock, match lock is it's a really important technology, actually. It takes the, um, the bit of burning match or wick or string or rope, whatever you want to call it, that you have to manually. You, people have seen this in movies with can, you know, you, you literally have a stick with a burning piece of rope on the end and they touch it to the back of the gun to fire it. At one point, that's how all guns were fired. That makes them very hard to aim. You can't really hold the thing in place and set it off. And there's a big explosion going off in front of your face as well, although to some extent there's not much you can do about that. The big leap there with the match lock, and the word lock refers to like a door lock. And we know that some, at least some makers of gun locks were also door and chest and other lock makers. It's the same technology, springs, pinions, or similar components at least. And so the match lock was a mechanism for dropping that burning ignition source into the gunpowder to set it off. And once you've got that, you can hold the thing up in the aim and you can actually hope to shoot a person rather than just putting bullets in their direction, which is kind of what was done before that. So the matchlock bit, very important, featured on all of the arquebuses and muskets pretty much of, of the day. The rifle part, that one is a rifle. And when what rifle actually is, is short for rifled gun. And when something is rifled, it's, well, you, you know the verb, it's for rummaging through, you know, um, tearing something apart. I'm sure there's better uh, definition than that. But in a firearm sense, you are rifling the barrel. So it's literally a rod with sharp tool on, on it that is rotated and shoved in and out of the barrel. A tremendously time-consuming process. And you end up with a spiral groove down the barrel. Why, why on earth would you do that? Well, the idea is that your soft lead bullet, when you ram it down, is gripped in those grooves. And the end result when it's fired out is very much like spinning a football through the air. Um, I probably should have said cricket ball. <laughs> Same idea, spin stabilization. You th- when you throw something, you impart a spin so that it stays stabilized in the air. And that's what was discovered certainly by 1540. So those with A, the need, and B, the money, (laughs) would have their barrels rifled or screwed. At this time, the term was screwed more than it was rifled. And same idea. In fact, it's more intuitively, more more makes intuitive sense. That does make sense because the shape of a screw (laughs) matches the the curvature that you're saying they wanted inside the barrel. Okay. Yeah. The last bit, Petronel, is, has been a bit of a mystery to, to those of us in the subject, for actually, partly because terminology was really impri- imprecise and not standardised. So one person's Petronel might not be the same as another's, especially in a different part of the country, a civilian versus a military person in a different country, then you're in a totally, potentially different ballpark. But we believe that a Petronel was, is from the French, as, and this gun, this rifle in particular, is from France, by coincidence, probably. Uh, It was a term for something between a pistol and a rifle or an arquebus. So long barrel, but without a a big stock on the back of it for more stable aim. Why would you have that? Well, today you probably wouldn't bother. (laughs) But at the time, I believe it was a a type of firearm developed for firing from horseback, one-handed. Because, of course, if you're on horseback, you got the reins in one hand. So we believe it was firing it from either the cheek, depending on the the stock, or that particular curved butt, we believe is for firing from the breast. So you'd literally, instead of putting it in the shoulder, like a a modern rifle, it sits on your cheek, because the recoil is quite low, or you you literally rest it on your chest and you look over the top of it and you fire it one-handed while riding your horse. Sounds crazy, but we think that's what the... uh, the origin was and this is just a really nice example of one of those certainly a menacing picture to see that coming across the battlefield at you 
to look at these weapons, which pictures of the weapons we are mentioning today are available online at the Royal Armories. We'll place links in the show notes to these weapons so you can see them as well. Jonathan, visually, these weapons look very similar. Explain for us in terms of how the gun was loaded, aimed, and fired. I think you've addressed the matchlock, but what about a flintlock rifle or a musket? How are these different? Yeah, so the matchlock, wheel lock, and flintlock, anything with a lock in it, just describes how the thing is fired. That matters to us, those of us who study the the subject, but it matters at the time as well because it depended on who you were and what what sort of shooting you were doing as to whether you needed the higher technology of a wheel lock. So usually the preserve of the rich, but if you were cavalry, the colonel of your regiment would purchase all of your equipment and sundries for you. And so you might get wheel lock pistols, for example. So you would end up with something reliable, quick firing, all the rest of it. Expensive, though, as well. The matchlock was the go-to for 200 plus years. It was a familiar quantity. It was cheap, easy to maintain, somewhat easy to operate. Although for those of us who are used to modern firearms, you imagine having to manipulate a burning bit of rope and constantly put it on the gun set it just so that there was something called trying your match where you would have to have the pan close so the gun is ready to fire you close the pan that holds the initial charge of powder that could go off if you set fire to it and is meant to and then you would put the match in place burning and you would press the trigger to see if it's going to hit where you need it to hit now they did all of this with lightning speed and a great deal of skill because they were they were trained to do so so it wasn't as laborious as it sounds, but nonetheless, an extra an extra step to the firing process, other than just putting gunpowder, bullet, and ramming, which is how you loaded all of these things. The flintlock was, this isn't quite linear. So, so the matchlock was the default. The wheel lock was the kind of specialist side option. And then increasingly from the six, early to mid 16th century onwards, so becoming somewhat popular by Shakespeare's time, is this flintlock, which is kind of what it sounds like. It's a piece of flint, and the, the lock mechanism is allowing you to strike a piece of steel with that piece of flint. So if you, you know, those of us have seen um, pirate movies, for example, the, the thing that you see flying forward that we probably call a hammer today was known as the cock because it was like a pecking hen. And confusingly, the piece of steel that sits in front of it and strikes the sparks off to set fire to the powder was called the hammer. So you see how confusing this gets quite quickly. That was more expensive than a a matchlock, but not as expensive as a wheel lock and did most of what a wheel lock did, technically speaking. So it became, over time, the standard. But by Shakespeare's time, it's still the wheel lock. So the flintlock was kind of a specialist application thing so if you were probably at that time you'd have to be a rich hunter or something to to have a, a flintlock or a snap pants as they called them then and that, that term also referred to the pecking hen things it's from the dutch snap han peck, peck hen so that's the kind of up and comer and during the english civil war or that period and um, the swedish 30 years war for example 1630s 40s what we see is the matchlocks fade away from the front line, the flintlock takes over, and from the wheel lock as well. And that's why we see it so much in later eras, you know, Revolutionary War, War of 1812, Waterloo, the flintlock is thoroughly established by that time because it was the way forward, but not in 1600, 1602. <laughs> so and are all of these... Like you, you mentioned that the word rifle is something that has a specific application. Is the word musket something that has a specific application as well, or is that an entirely different kind of weapon? Excellent question. So I've been wittering on about um, locks and how you shoot the thing to the to the soldier, provided he knew how to operate it. Um, probably didn't matter too much. He, you know, he shot what he was given. And what was criti- more critical, really, was whether it was an arquebus, a caliber, a musket a rifle, and these are all different flavors of gun. The big one that we know today is the musket. And we often, even those of us in this field, often sort of casually call things muskets that really we should probably call an arquebus or a caliber. 
Um, so it's Shakespeare's time, and you, this word comes up quite a bit. It's more the caliber. This is this is a lighter weight, shoulder fired gun. But by that time, we now had a new challenger, um, as it were, on the battlefield, which was the musket. We think this came to, uh, from Spain. Um, the name musket is one of these many words that comes from either birds or fantasy creatures. So lots of different guns are called. Uh, so a saker, for example, is a type of cannon. It's a f- sort of falcon. Uh, falcon, in fact, was another term for a piece of artillery. So the only handheld gun that got a sort of macho bird type name was the musket, which is a, um, a particular type of male hawk. So <laughs> that's that's the sort of etymology. What's the musket? Well, it's a giant arquebus and also a standardized one. So in the days of the arquebus, 1400, well, 1450-ish maybe, to up to Shakespeare's time, you're looking at anything goes. So you could equip your, your band of merry men <laughs> with very small bore, small caliber, lightweight arquebuses. Or the very same name could be used to describe something absolutely immense that you could barely carry. Over time, things get more standardized. We end up with the, the caliber, which is this um, sort of English term for a, for, a cert, for a standardized type of arquebus, possibly one of a bigger bore as well. It all gets a bit complicated. But then in the 1520s, 30s, we start to see this musket thing. And it's a giant gun on a stick. So it's so big and heavy, and you're talking here about a, a caliber. If the if the caliber or the, or the arquebus is between about 50 caliber and about 0.65 of an inch, which is what caliber means, it's fractions of an inch, then the musket was between 0.7 of an inch and an inch. <laughs> it was like man-portable artillery. And that really was quite a change because you could make armor to stop an arquebus or a caliber, same thing, really. You could even you could make armor to stop a musket, but suddenly you can no longer move, uh, and so that was very uncommon. You would only see um, breastplates that thick and, and strong for, say, siege warfare, where you are stuck in that position, and someone might take a pot shot at you with a musket. And this is what this is the era of uh, what the military historians call pike and shot. And that's what, so we go through a two-tier system of arquebuses for the light, more agile infantry and muskets for the musketeers, which of course is where the term comes from, for your dedicated sort of battering the enemy troops. <laughs> I mean, they can, they can skirmish and things as well, but they are, they are there to just annihilate whatever's in front of them with a, with a hail of gunfire. And then you have pikemen in blocks with massive, you know, 18-foot poles with steel on the end doing the sort of pushing stabbing (laughs) form of fighting and they protect the musketeers and well after shakespeare's time what we see is the two merge together and the musket scales down and well three musketeers (laughs) kind of era again in the civil war things change but at his time it's still very much pike and shot you've got your pikemen with the steel helmets and breastplates and long pikes doing sort of a rugby scrum push against the enemy's pikemen, but also defending the musketeers who for one shot are absolutely devastating, but then they've got to reload the thing. The rifle is a form of form of gun with that screwed barrel that spins the bullet. So you would only use the term rifle for a gun that has that feature. So we we we, often, we might see uh, something like a, a musket or, or an arquebus in, in an old bit of art, and we might colloquially say it's a rifle. It's only a rifle if it has the spiral groove, which of course is a challenge because you can't always tell. <laughs> you might have the no, you might have the exact same gun just with spiral grooves or not. But as things become quite specialized in a certain direction, we can probably make an educated guess. In Shakespeare's Henry IV, Part Two, we find three references, all by Falstaff, to another gun from Shakespeare's lifetime that's housed in the collections at Royal Armories, and that is the Snaphance muzzle-loading arquebus or caliber. Now, you've you've mentioned this 
weapon, the one at the Royal Armories, was from about 1615. And in Act 4, Scene 2 of Henry IV, Part 2, Falstaff indicates how a caliber is used when he says, quote, such as fear the report of a caliber worse than a struck fowl or a hurt wild duck, end quote. His other two references are where he asks for caliber to be given to him from someone nearby as if this weapon was a personal weapon. Just visually, this gun looks like what I've seen in film versions or even paintings of the early American colonists. Jonathan, was this weapon considered a personal defense weapon in the early 17th century? Would the colonists going from England to North America have taken this kind of gun with them? Yes and yes would be the short answer there. So I've mentioned pistols, what we now might call a handgun. They're relatively prestige specialist weapons. I'm sure some colonists took those with them. I'm just trying to think if I've seen any archaeological evidence of that. Can't think of any. What you typically see are what they would have called a caliber or perhaps a fowler or a fowling piece. And really the difference between them is a question of military versus civilian. But terminology was very fluid, very flexible, and they might well use the terms interchangeably. When I say fowler or fowling piece, you mentioned struck foul. Well, there you go. They're using, in that example, a caliber to shoot birds. So on one level, a fowler or fowling piece is just a gun used to shoot birds. Um, over time, I think that becomes more specialist, and you could probably identify a fowler from a lineup. You know, caliber is is this kind of. I mean, we kind of come full circle in that we have we have modern military military style rifles, as, as people would probably call them, used for sporting purposes. Without getting into the politics of, of all of that, the same was true at this time. So, in 1615, a caliber, a sort of quite svelte, lightweight maybe eight, nine pound gun fired from the shoulder using a probably a matchlock of about 65 caliber could be used for killing a man in self-defense, protecting property or on, on the battlefield equally. Or if you load it with shot, small, small shot or hail shot was a term from the period, uh, which is quite evocative, you know, a hail of shot to shoot birds on the ground. Typically, they weren't shooting birds in the air at this time. But, you know, wading birds or or birds sort of coming down to feed on the ground, you would shoot them for the pot. Um, So it's all the same technology being used for a range of purposes. And Henry IV, part one, Hotspur gives a speech about the impact of guns on chivalry. At the end, he says, quote, but for these vile guns, he would himself have been a soldier, end quote. The real historical Hotspur named Henry Percy was alive in the 14th century and famous for being an English knight in the Hundred Years' War. The play, Henry VI, part one, is believed to have been written much later in 1596, a full 200 years after the real life of the actual Hotspur. Is Hotspur's reference in the play an anachronism by Shakespeare, or would the real Hotspur have also used guns? That's that's a fascinating quote and a really good question. The short answer is probably that he's about 100 years out, but fairly major caveat is that the first reference to firearms at handguns in England is 1364, if I remember rightly. So not impossible. And that that fascinating attitude that firearms might be a sort of coward's weapon or a cheater's weapon or somehow not chivalric, I find fascinating. I'd love to do some research into that. And I'm sure it emerged immediately, you know, in that, in that 14th century period. So the real hotspur may well have kind of tutted at the use of handguns or hackbutts on the battlefield. But the proliferation really didn't happen for another hundred years. So I, I suspect it's and it's an anachronistic, but I think we can give give Shakespeare a little bit of artistic license in that there were guns around at that time. Whether he knew that or even cared is another another matter, because of course our idea of historical accuracy is relatively modern. When we study other weapons of Shakespeare's lifetime, specifically swords, there were a great many rules and regulations about who could own a sword as well as who had the right to use one. When it comes to guns, were there these similar regulations in place for Shakespeare's lifetime? Would you have to be of a certain status to own a gun personally? Yes. (laughs) Well, we expected that from the Elizabethan (laughs) era. They had rules for everything, I think. 
Yeah, it's it's kind of the the very first regulation affecting firearms that I'm aware of is Henry VIII rather than Elizabethan, but pretty close, of course. Um, but it's definitely around that time that that <laughs> the wealthy start to feel perhaps threatened to some extent um, by the ability of a firearm to take one of the deer. You know, poaching suddenly becomes. I mean, you might you might argue that. Um, bows are already sufficient to to cause mayhem, to take people's property, uh, livestock, that kind of thing. My and it's a bit more of a feeling than a than a hard fact, but my impression is that the sort of the ability to instantly, definitively kill something would have been seen as perhaps a bit of a threat to the status quo. The the sort of express reason for restricting firearms in these early sort of royal proclamations or restrictions is people causing chaos. People being antisocial. So we have something in the UK these days called an antisocial behaviour order, or ASBO, which is a kind of a curious thing that popped up, I think, in the 90s. And it's this idea that it used to be just called public a public order offence. So if you were drunk and brawling in the street, if you were playing loud music out of the window and disrupting, it, was, it seems to have been on that level, fascinatingly. Um, so for all my speculation about the ability of if poor people got hold of guns, they might they might be more of a threat to, to people's property, to their livestock, to their status, and potentially to them personally, in terms of staging a French Revolution style scenario. That's all kind of speculative. What we know is that they were worried about loud noises, people getting hit by stray bullets, because of course this is a new, new-ish and unregulated technology. And what do we see whenever there's a, a new technology in, in, introduced? be it cars, guns, aircraft, information technology equipment, there's an initial sort of Wild West period, if you like, Um, although ironically the real Wild West was not that full of unregulated guns, but anyway, that's another story. We we see this initial early adoption period where also drones, see also drones, lasers, (laughs) where they're unregulated, people can do what the heck they like with them, and they do, and the minority spoils it for the rest. And what happens? We get laws. So <laughs> you can speculate so with, about... With all technology, it had that same sort of cycle that it went through. Absolutely, yeah. So it's a new technology in, in sort of 1400, but only the only those sort of making war or are well, who are well off have it. So there aren't enough people to cause a problem. By 1600, it's trickled down to what you might call the middle classes, people with a small bit of property, perhaps, and people are starting to cause a nuisance with them. That's the official story anyway. Now, you mentioned the lead bullets and how that was a great metal to use for bullets because it was so malleable and you could shape it into originally, you know, a sphere, but later into into bullets. Were there guns and, and bullets manufacturing happening like a gunsmith or an armory in London during Shakespeare's lifetime? Or did each gun owner take responsibility for you know, producing and maintaining their own weapon? The short answer is both. England was a little behind the curve. So in the 14th century, when some other European armies were adopting hackbutters, who who were the men that use hackbutts, the English were still wedded very much to their great war bow, the long bow that they're famous for, and the Welsh. And and also, you know, things people like um, Genoese crossbowmen, uh, mercenary or you know temporary units that would be able to use crossbows and in many ways these these early handheld firearms were more replacements for crossbows than anything else they had a similar effectiveness really they were better in various ways a little bit less costly easier to train with and more likely to go through armor so anyway what that means is we are being behind the curve in adoption means we're also behind the curve in manufacturing and so the early the earliest handheld firearms in England are imported. So Henry VIII is the ground zero, really, for English and, by extension, British firearms. So he purchases really nice Italian um, arquebuses. Um, We have several in our collection, and bits of others, pretty much identical, were found on the Mary Rose. And they're all Italian-made in the same valley that the, the modern company of Beretta um, still makes firearms today. Amazing bit of continuity in, in that respect. 
And he bought all sorts of weird stuff, uh, experimental gun shields. We had a shield with a gun in the middle of it. Um, he had two of his own handguns, arquebuses again, I would call them, were, that were breech loading, which is a technology that, in terms of actual use, postdates Shakespeare by a very long time 200 years plus. But he was such an early adopter that he had one of the few, or two of the few breech loading guns in the world, probably. And the only others I know of were belonged to other members of well, kings, basically. <laughs> so that means you open a door at the back, you put effectively a cartridge in the back, close it, you fire it. Really quite high tech. The reason I mentioned them is that one of those is imported. I believe it's from um, Germany or the Low Countries. My memory's failed me slightly there. Um, but the other one, critically, was made by an English maker. And I'm not saying that's the first firearm made in England. It almost certainly wasn't, but it's the earliest one that I know of. And those are dated 1540-ish, which is quite telling. Um, just jumping back quickly to your question on the legislation, because I've just remembered it, <laughs> the very first bit of firearms legislation is 1541. So the very next year after he introduced this <laughs> weapon. <laughs> okay, we need to do something about this. Yeah, so that one, I don't think that one is a, is a firm date. It's, it's kind of approximate, but it's, it's so close. It's quite telling, I think. Right, now I've got this technology. The rest of you need to be of a certain income level <laughs> to have it, which is what that bit of legislation is. It's not a license. It's not a ban. It's people under a certain level of income can't have guns, which sets a trend for the very fascinating divergent gun cultures in the UK and the US, I think. There's an excellent book on this by uh, Lois Schwerer, uh, American academic, that sort of sets the scene really nicely for you know, the, the, the myth of the American firearm is to some extent true. You, you know, a big, expansive country full of deadly animals, full of, full of human threats, um, and then, of course, civil conflict as well. You need a gun to survive. Therefore, firearms are relatively free and easy, and they are relatively free and easy today. Uh, whereas in England, you are protected by the authority to a greater or lesser extent, and the monopoly of, on violence lies with them and, th and therefore they increasingly control the guns that you can have so that's hyper simplified um, but um i think you know this henry being ground zero for guns in england and by extension english colonies in america all of that's fascinating i know we would love to explore this topic further in, in the collections at the royal armories for sure but what are some of your favorite books or resources in addition to lois Schur's book that you can recommend we use to learn more yeah so i should i should give the um, the proper reference for lois's book gun culture in early modern england by lois g uh, schwerer s-c-h-w-o-e-r-e-r -E -E that's well worth a look even though it sort of overruns the period we're interested in today but that's well worth a look. There isn't a huge amount of um, sort of academic level scholarship on these early guns. So that's quite a key work for me. Um, you can also find an earlier article of hers online um, if, you, if you have a look for that. So I actually did go looking for this, for this show, thinking there's got to be something specific on the guns of Shakespeare. There's stuff on the guns of Sherlock Holmes. So the damn well should be. <laughs> Absolutely. I think so too. <laughs> and it turns out there is. There's a 1908 dated article from, um, I've described him as one of my predecessors, which, which uh, makes me feel slightly humble. He was a, <laughs> a Viscount, Viscount Dillon. And he was one of these early sort of gentleman scholar types. Not super early. The field of arms and armour got started in what, what I like to describe as the, as the sort of neo-Gothic period when there's this fascination with Egyptian, the first fascination really with Egyptian archaeology, with weird, fascinating things that people bring back from other countries and with arms and armour, because all of that looks splendid in your Gothic mansion. And then they start learning about this stuff and the significance of it. And increasingly, it's more about the history and the people. And But still, it looks splendid on the wall. And the Tower of London is a sort of a centre of all of that. Viscount uh, Dillon is effectively, well, he's one of the curators. 
and curator then was kind of in charge of the place as well so that's why i say humble because you know he's, he's come well before me and is much more of a luminary than than i will ever be in our little field but he produced this 1908 article in the archaeological journal called weirdly it's the other way around we usually say arms and armor but he says armor and arms in shakespeare and that's available online so that's also worth checking out uh, one more that i squeezed in because I know you were interested in particular in a sort of one-stop shop for early guns, which is really hard to do. People tend to focus in on their particular interests or they write something more contextual like Lois's book. But there is um, quite old now, so it is a bit out of date, but it's a, a good sort of scamper through the history of firearms is uh, Pollard's History of Firearms. Um, that was edited together after the fact, uh, or sort of second, a very good second edition effectively, by another sort of star of our field, Claude Blair. So you might find a copy of that floating around. The, the the hard copies are probably a bit expensive. And if you were intrigued by my mention of Da Vinci and the Wheel Lock, um, which of course another, we were. <laughs> well, I hope so. <laughs> um, the and it's kind of a cool gadget, you know. Even if you're not not into the firearms side of it. In fact, the, the other there are two sketches in Da Vinci's Folio Four, I think it is, that has um, the Wheel Lock gun mechanism. One's the gun mechanism. And one is a tinder lighter, because the same technology was used for a long time to create the same sparks to light tinder. Anyway, there is a book by another of my predecessors, much more recently, Graham Reimer, Keeper of Weapons, and lastly, our academic director, who uh, wrote a book called Wheel Lock Firearms of the Royal Armouries. So a little bit of um, publicization for the uh, publicity even. Uh, for the armories as well but it's a really nice uh, slightly more modern than um, a couple of the other picks um, with some nice diagrams as well which is important I think <laughs> absolutely yes with all of the details that we've discussed the diagrams are key I think and these are some great resources we will link to all of these as well as the royal armories in the show notes for today's episode so make sure you go there to find links to all of these check out the images and see all of those resources posted there. Now, Jonathan, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. Well, I'd probably be more interested in the Shakespeare than the Bible, I must admit, but I'll, I'll take them. And I would add to that, which, which uh, I can hear eyes rolling already, those people who know me, I would take Dracula. <laughs> Absolutely. Too. Well, I, that makes sense with uh, your Gothic castle decorations you mentioned earlier. So that Absolutely. Would, yeah. That would well, I also, well. Um, one of my <laughs> proudest moments was, and it's kind of by association really, but I collected for, for the Royal Armouries, well, a number of wacky things actually, but um, one of them was a vampire killing kit, which is, spoiler alert, not really an historical thing. It's, it's a, <laughs> a pastiche of you know, stakes and a gun and a crucifix and silver bullets and stuff like that. I believe, as the person who did the research, because no one else was going to, probably invented post-Second World War, possibly, probably 70s with the Hammer movies and all of that. But nonetheless, a fascinating bit of modern gothic. And one of my proudest moments was seeing that on display next to a first edition of Dracula at the British Library, who were very excited Fantastic. to borrow it. Fantastic. Well their, done. Thank you for their <laughs> gothic exhibition back in 2014 now. So that was really nice, like an acknowledgement that, you know, among others, that guns can represent all sorts of different things. I think that's wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Weirdly, having, having just produced a ridiculously large book that will break your coffee table should you be foolish enough to buy it um, that took several years to produce it's kind of doing just doing normal museum work so and at the moment that doesn't really include exhibitions either because with the pandemic on with things are a little bit contracted so I'm kind of between research projects and between exhibition phases but that means we're able to focus on um, cataloging so taking one of the tens of thousands of things that we have that currently, so it's a bit like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, for, for those of you who know it, uh, where the entry just says mostly harmless for Earth. So many things we have just say flintlock musket. <laughs> and so going back in and plugging in all the information that we can say about that 
particular object, taking some half decent photos, hopefully, and then that all all of that ends up online so that researchers or the general public who aren't researchers can see it. And that's one of our core activities that we do. Oh, that's wonderful. I love to hear about projects that are being posted online as well as being physical projects because it makes people like me and our listeners able to to access them and to see them and so much easier. So that's wonderful. Yeah. And these these days we also get feedback too. So, you know, we put something up or something's been up for 50 years wrong. Um, and someone who also knows the subject, because we're not the only people that do, or maybe they've maybe they've spotted um a name on there and they're able to tell us who owned it or something, they can click contact curator and they can add to that information as well. So it doesn't happen very often, but when it does, it's very welcome. And so go on onto our um, website, have a look at what's up there. Some of the things we've been talking about, um, as you said, are photographed and described on there. Very much a work in progress. Then I will be, there will be a book that I've contributed to on, would you believe those of you who understand, who, who know flintlocks, Flintlock revolvers, so very early revolvers, so a gun with multiple shots and a turning cylinder. Turns out those go back to 1650-ish, and and ones that actually turn when you cock them as well. So like a cowboy revolver, cock them and they turn. So mechanical, not just things you turn by hand. So I've contributed to, or I've co-written the first chapter in a, a book about something quite specific and nerdy. I'm also doing articles on the side on several of our early revolvers. So another couple of hundred years on from what we've been talking about. Well, that all sounds fascinating. We'll put links to um, where you can keep up with Jonathan and his work at the Royal Armories in the show notes for today's episode. Jonathan Ferguson, thank you so much for being here today and walking us through the history of the archivists and guns and a look at lead bullets and the, the whole arsenal of things we've covered here today. This has been a really great conversation and I appreciate your time. You're very welcome indeed. And I hope everyone's still awake. <laughs> The links that we promised you to the resources and more information on Jonathan, as well as the Royal Armories and their exhibitions and all of the artifacts that they have housed there from Henry VIII and the examples of the matchlock and flintlock and things we've been discussing are all packed into the show notes for today's episode. Find all these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 187. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP 187. If you liked the history we talked about on today's episode and you would love to go even further into the history of our topic today, then you will love becoming a member. Members at That Shakespeare Life get access to our entire video streaming library, including documentaries and bonus episodes. Plus, they get access to our history guides, worksheets, lesson plans, and activities, all of which coordinate not only with the episodes here of That Shakespeare Life, but with Shakespeare's plays and poems as well. And we show you in all of this bonus material where those things are connected. So you can bring this episode and our topics here on the show right into your home or classroom. Come inside and explore membership today with this 14-day free trial available at CassidyCash.com slash member. That's CassidyCash.com slash M-E-M-B-E-R. I'll see you inside. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.